from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Career Talk on Business Radio. Here is your host, Dr. Don Graham. Welcome to Career Talk, your <laughs> career insider. We are here in Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. I'm the career director for the Wharton MBA program for executives here in Philadelphia. I'm also a licensed psychologist and former corporate recruiter. And we have Dion and Dana in studio. And Don, we all have D names. Amazing. The the, the the synchronicity in this room is amazing. So we are taking your calls right now. It's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. We want to hear from you, 844-942-7866, because it is open calls if it's Thursday and you have any career or job search questions. Today is the day to call. And today is a show all about luck. In fact, it's a show about creating your own luck, which is awesome. And to help us with that topic, we welcome Tina Seelig, professor of practice in Stanford University's Department of Management Science and Engineering and faculty director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. A TED speaker and recipient of numerous awards, Dr. Seelig earned her PhD in neuroscience at Stanford Medical School and has been a management consultant, entrepreneur, and author of 17 books, including Insight Out, Ingenious, and the one we're going to talk a lot about today, which is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 which has just been re-released. And I will tell you, it's absolutely phenomenal. And I'm so excited that Tina is here and we're going to share all the information from this book because this is a book you need to read. Welcome to Career Talk, Tina. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So I love this book and it covers so many life lessons. So whether you're you're 20 or 50 or 80, the lessons in this book just jump out and kind of smack you upside the head because these are things that... that we should know and we should engage with in daily life, but it's really easy to forget. And I want to start with the idea of luck because this idea of being able to create your own luck is what a lot of people are looking for. So what is what is luck? How do you define luck, Tina? It's really interesting you should ask. Um, my father and I debate this endlessly for decades, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Stanford. And, of course, we know that people need to be really lucky to make their ventures and their ideas come to life. And I realized that there's a really big difference between fortune, chance, and luck. And they have really different amounts of personal agency. So fortune are things that just happen to you. I'm fortunate to be born in this place and time, to this family, etc. Chance, you have to take a chance. You know, you have to roll the dice or you have to buy a lottery ticket or you have to ask someone out on a date. It might be a low probability you're going to get a response, a good response, but you had to take a chance. And luck, you have much more control. I like to say that the winds of luck are always blowing and it's up to you to build a sail to catch it. And there are lots of things you can do to increase the probability that luck is going to come your way. And I love the examples in your book because you have so many. This book is just packed with with stories that are both just plain interesting, but also inspiring, and and ones that are they're actually really simple. One of the stories I love about luck that you have in the book is about Wayne the butcher, and I really think this home, this drives that point home that that luck is everywhere. We just have to seize it. Can you share that story, Tina? Yes, um, I was talking about luck with a friend of mine, and he pointed me to this video that is online about this documentary that was made in the UK where they went to a little tiny town, the producers of this video, and they wanted to explore luck. And they asked people if they felt that they were lucky or not. And they found this guy named Wayne who said, I am so unlucky. I'm the most unlucky person in the world. And they wanted to test this this hypothesis. So they just kept doing things to put luck right in front of him. Everything from putting a 50-pound note you know, on the ground in front of him, which he walked right over, to putting a lottery ticket, a winning lottery ticket in his mailbox, which he threw away, to coming up to him and offering to do a survey that if he would get a prize if he finished. And it was all about cuts of meat, and he was a butcher, and he decided not to engage in this. 
finally they had a huge, huge truck with his name on the side saying, Wayne, call this number. And he literally passed it by until finally they literally parked in front of me and said, wow, I wonder if that's for me. (laughs) So the fact is all of these things were in his path, and the fact that he didn't engage with them made him feel unlucky. But they were right there. All he had to do is open his eyes. Yeah, and you talk about two parts, which is which is one seeing the opportunities, which which Wayne missed, and then seizing the opportunities. So so you have to do both. Can you speak a little bit about this? Because I think a lot of us um, do one or the other, and then we say, why are we so unlucky? Exactly. And I I think about this all the time. You know, we can, they're the people who uh, see the opportunity and then someone else does it and they go, well, gee, you know, they're kind of bitter because they say, well, I had that idea. Well, having the idea is great. I'm a huge believer that ideas are, are incredibly valuable. But if you don't actually seize it, you're missing that huge opportunity. So knowing the opportunities there is the first step. And so you really need to get out and do something. And for example, um, I tell a story, I think you watched my TED Talk where I talked about luck, about sitting next to someone who was a publisher on the airplane. And I started a conversation with him. Now, I was an author, and I had some new book ideas. And, you know, I just started building that relationship. It wasn't about doing something instant that I needed to quickly, I wasn't going to get a book contract at the end of this flight, but by cultivating that relationship over several years, by doing lots of little tiny things, I continued to increase my probability that something wonderful was going to happen and ultimately ended up with a book contract. You're listening to Career Talk on SiriusXM Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We are here with Tina Selig telling all about her book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And we want to hear from you. 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Of course, you can always tweet at Dr. Don Graham as well. If you've got a question, of course, it's open calls if it's Thursday noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. We want to hear from you. And hey, if you're somebody who feels like you just have the worst luck, today's a great day to call because Tina can give you some insights on how you can change that. And maybe you're someone who has great luck and you have some tips to share. We want to hear from you too. All hour on Career Talk 844-844-942-7866. So let's talk about the two sides of, of becoming lucky, Tina. So so seeing opportunities. How how is it that we can see opportunities? Because here's the here's the real deal. We are so immersed in distractions, whether that's our phone. I mean we walk around constantly with our face on our phone, which is why probably Wayne didn't see the 50, 50 pound bill. But I mean how do we how do we see these opportunities that are around us. You're absolutely right. You have to pay attention. Most of us walk through life with blinders on, seeing the same thing over and over, and not um, really paying attention to the opportunities in front of us. If you do, you're going to see every single day places, there, even there might be just little bugs in your life. You know, gosh, tripping over the same power cord on the floor or wondering, gosh, I wish there was a water fountain here or wouldn't it be great if there was coffee served at this event. It, once you start figuring out that there's a bug, that there's a problem, it's probably a problem that other people face as well. And you can start thinking about, gee, how might I solve that problem? So the first step is engaging in the world and then envisioning what might be different. And I, I think you, there's a point in your book, too, that talks about the fact that um, somebody you interviewed said, if you leave an event without speaking to anyone, you've, you've lost a million dollars. Can you right. explain that comment? Yeah, so this is a colleague of mine from Chile, and he basically said uh, to his students, and I thought it was totally brilliant, that there's a million dollars waiting for you in every room. It's up to you to find it. And if you have that mindset that you're basically on a scavenger hunt every day for the opportunities that exist. Now, of course, it might not be a million dollars in cash. It might be a million dollars worth of a new friendship or a trip around the world. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. In fact, uh, let me share the story. I think um, you probably read in there about uh, turning lemonades into helicopters. It's one of my favorite stories from my own life uh, about how this happens. This was a fellow who um, I bumped into at the grocery store, and he asked me how to make lemonade, and he clearly wasn't from around here, and I started a conversation with him in in line in the grocery store, and and, uh, he said he was from Chile, and he was here to learn about entrepreneurship, and so I gave him my business card, right, a little tiny gesture, uh, if I can be helpful to you, let me know, I, I run this entrepreneurship center at Stanford, 
And he did reach out to me, and then I was able to be helpful in ways that were pretty easy for me but incredibly valuable to him. And this is really important. There's often a huge asymmetry where something you can do would be super easy for you to accomplish, but it's going to be very meaningful to the other person. And ultimately, a couple years later, I reached out to him again when I was going to Chile for the first time, and he you know, said, you know what, I have a special treat for you and some of your colleagues. I met one of his colleagues at a business uh, downtown in, in Santiago, was led up to the roof of the building where I was met by uh, his company's helicopter, and we were taken for a ride around the city. Fantastic. And of course, I didn't help him at the grocery store. I didn't give him my business card. I didn't do these things in order to get a helicopter ride around Santiago, Chile. I helped him because it was a little thing I could do. And you know what? You never know at what scale and size uh, things are going to come back to you. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And I think we miss opportunities every single day. And for those of you out there saying, I'm just not lucky, here's the challenge for you is put your phone in your pocket and be more observant around what's going on around you. Because I guarantee there's those those $50 bills and there's those signs that say, call this number that you are missing every day. And if you just take a little bit more time to take notice or stay after an event and talk to somebody or offer to do something that's helpful to somebody, you will be shocked at how these seeds blossom into amazing opportunities. 844-844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk on SiriusXM. Channel 132, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Tina Seelig, professor at Stanford University and author of 17 books, Ted's speaker and somebody who can teach you how to create your own luck in your life, whether it's your career or you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to take more risks. Today's the day to call 844-942-7866. If it's Thursday noon Eastern, we're taking your calls live right now. So um, so we talked about seeing opportunities. Let's talk about seizing them. So so I think all of us can think of a time, Tina, when we, we had this idea, you know, what you know, would be really cool if there was this. And then a few years later, you see it on the shelf or you, you see an app for it and you're like, oh, I had that idea. <laughs> I didn't do anything with it. So how do we how do we combat that? Yeah, it happens all the time. And the key is people often get stuck at that stage of what do I do? They think they have to go from this idea to something really big. But the trick is you can go from this idea, this little idea, the seed of possibility, to doing something little. And I love the concept that comes from one of my colleagues who I teach with. His name is Alberto Savoia. And he coined the term a pretotype. And the idea is that a pretotype is a tiny little experiment to test if you're doing the right thing before you put all the effort in doing it right and essentially doing something very, very big that's going to be a big investment of time and money and resources. So, for example, um, let's say, well, well, let me give you a couple of of real-life examples. Uh, Bill Gross, who runs Idea Lab, and he's an incredibly innovative guy down in Southern California, years ago he had the idea of selling cars online and wanted to think about starting a company called Cars Direct. Now, this was very, very, very early in the days of e-commerce, and so the concept of selling something like a car online was very kind of a crazy idea. So what did he do? He did essentially a prototype. Instead of buying any cars, building a whole inventory management system, putting together an entire business, he just put up a very simple website that allowed you to say, pretend to buy a car online. Now, of course, the user didn't think it was pretend. They thought they could just buy a car. But he put up the site to see if people would respond. And the first night three people bought a car. So you know, what did he do? He, he shut down the site. I mean, he didn't have any business. So he, <laughs> there he are bought, no cars. There were no cars. So he had to go out and buy these cars. He bought three cars, sold them for the same price. He I probably lost money on each one of them. But that was okay. What he did gain was an incredible insight that people would buy cars online. And then he went and did the hard work of building the business and launched it properly. But let's say he had put all this hard work and spent months and months building this and putting together an inventory of cars and no one wanted it. That would have been a huge waste of resources and time. And you can do this. This prototyping is super, super simple. 
let's say uh, McDonald's wants to um, try a new product like Mac Spaghetti. This is an example that Alberto uses. What would be the simplest thing they could do to see if someone might be interested in Mac Spaghetti? Uh, do you have any ideas? Dion knows the answer. Okay. <laughs> Dion knows the answer to all of these oh, questions. The answer. Well, the key is the simplest thing you could do is put it on the menu. You don't even have to make any spaghetti. The idea is to put it on the menu and just say, hey, at lunchtime, might you want to try Mac Spaghetti? And if someone says yes, you go, oh, my gosh, you know what? We're out of stock here. Have some extra fries. But at the end of lunch, you're going to have a really good piece of data in a couple of hours on how many people would have taken you up for the offer if it, if it was available. So, yeah, and, and I know in your book you talk about risk, and a lot of this takes risk in certain ways. However, I, what I really like about how you talk about risk, Tina, is you talk about different aspects of risk. So you talk, it's not just about financial risk or, or physical risk. So you might be somebody who invests a lot of money in the market, but you wouldn't jump out of a plane. So there's different types of risk. And I think we tend to define ourselves as either risk takers or not risk takers. But what I learned when I read your book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, is that, you know what, there are areas of my life where I'm willing to take more risks and others where I tend to be more reserved. And that was so insightful for me. So, so you know, how does this impact your luck? It's really, really important, and you, you hit on something that has was a big insight of mine a few years ago. If you ask people if they're risk-takers or not, they clearly will answer, like, sure, I'm a risk-taker, or oh, my gosh, I'm not. But once you start teasing apart, you realize that risk-taking is not binary. It's much more nuanced, right? There are zillions of types of risks, physical risks, social risks, emotional risks, financial risks, um, ethical risks, creative risks, political risks. And you could keep going through and sort of then mapping out your own risk profile. And this is what I have my students do. I created a little riskometer in which they can map out their risk profile. And then they compare them with each other. And they're shock and amazement at how different they are. And what you realize, A, is if you're going to start any new venture, it's probably good to have someone with complementary risk profile so that you can, um, you're not all afraid of the same thing <laughs> and you aren't all just um, willing to take risks in a certain area. The other thing is you can then figure out where you want to stretch yourself. You might say, you know what, I really want to be a bigger social risk taker. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise my hand once in class today. Or I'm going to say hello to one new person today. And then what happens is you start realizing, you know what, that didn't hurt very much. I can do that. I, I think I can do that. I'm going to raise my hand twice next week. And you start ending up finding that taking those little risks gets you out of your comfort zone, and you start ending up um, finding new opportunities you didn't see before. In fact, there's a, a wonderful guy whose name escapes me, but uh, maybe you remember his book he wrote a few years ago about um, 100 days of rejection. Ah, yes. And yes. he basically decided that he was going to inoculate himself against his fear of failure by setting out to get to fail, setting out to fail. So that essentially the failure became a success. So he kept going up to people and asking them for things that he was pretty sure they'd say no to. But you know what happened? A huge percentage of time people said yes. And he started realizing not only was the failure it didn't hurt very much, but that there, it really increased the probability that he was going to get what he was hoping for. Yeah, that's that book was Rejection Proof by yes, Zhu Zhang. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I actually saw him speak, and uh, I, I think he's at, he was at Duke. Um, and, I mean, it was just phenomenal. He had videos of all of these things that he did where he, he literally went up to some, some random house and asked if he could play soccer in their backyard, thinking they would say no, and they did. Um, yeah, sure. he, he asked somebody if he could fly their helicopter. He, asked, he went to a bank and asked them for $100 bills so he could make paper airplanes. And, yeah, he was trying to inoculate himself against his rejection, but everybody kept saying yes. And a phenomenal book, too, if you're, if you're looking for another great great book. That's that's a good one to read. Hey, 844-942-7866. You're listening to SiriusXM Channel 132. It's Thursday, noon Eastern. We're taking your calls all hour. And we're going to go to Bill in Scranton. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Don. Hi, Bill. So I wanted to make a little comment about uh, taking chances in your career and bet yourself a, a story that happened to me. Oh, I love stories. Um, 
I was uh, pursuing a, a graduate degree in human resources, but I didn't have any experience, so I had a hard time getting a, a full-time position in human resources. So I actually ended up uh, leaving a job I was very comfortable with and uh, taking a temporary position with a staffing agency on an assignment in human resources. Um, my whole thought was I wanted to get some experience, and that assignment actually only lasted about four or five weeks. But I used those experiences and those skills to land a permanent full-time position three weeks later as a recruiter and HR generalist. So I took a big chance on myself, um, and it paid off. I love that story, Bill, because I know when you're making that decision to kind of leave the safety net, there had to be a million things going through your head. What were they? Um, I felt like if I if I didn't take the opportunity that presented itself, another opportunity might not come along. And I didn't want to finish up a graduate degree and have no real world practical experience. Um, so that was the main thing. This could have been my only shot. So however long it lasted, I wanted to to see if I could make it work. Um, and ultimately, I did. And and I think a lot of people, um, and we can bring all the stuff we're talking about to the job search. I mean, one of the best ways to get your foot in the door, especially if you're a career switcher, is to do a temp position or to look for a contract role or even to volunteer your time with a company to build that experience. And a lot of people are very nervous to do that either because they don't know how to ask or they're afraid to leave their secure job to do something that might only be a three-month job when, when research shows actually if you go in and you do a great job, they're probably going to hire you or extend your contract. And guess what? You're going to now be on the right ladder as opposed to being on the wrong ladder. You know, or you 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 convince yourself that nobody's going to want to do this. So there's no process to follow. Nobody's done it before. So I don't know if this will work. But that's why I love your story, Bill, because the, what you said, I'm going to take a quote from what you said, that you invested in yourself and you believed in yourself. That is so critical because why should somebody hire you and invest in you if you don't invest in you? That's something that's hard. How did you get to that point, Bill? Of deciding to invest in myself, mm -hmm. you know, just um, just my life experiences, just the people around me, my support, um, just my education, sort of everything came together, and I said, you know, you know, I know I could do this. This could be my only opportunity, so let me give it a shot. And I had people who wanted to support me, um, and ended up working out. And, and you know, another benefit of taking on temporary opportunities is the people that you meet on the job could help you in your future career or become friends. And that actually happened. I made a lot of friends at the uh, the temporary place that I went to. And they remain friends to this day. And um, so, you know, it all worked out for me. And if you believe in yourself um, and you work hard, it could work out for just about anybody. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is, is what is the flip side? And the flip side is regret. And we know that regret for things you didn't do tends to, to last a lifetime versus things you did do and didn't work out. And I, I think of a, you made me think of a, a student I coached who wanted to work at a very prestigious firm, but the firm said, we, we can hire you for a six-month contract and we'll see how it goes, which meant he had to leave his very secure job, well-paying job, to take this six-month chance, but this was his only way to get into this company. And, and I know he struggled with it because, you know, leaving the safety net, what if it doesn't work out? I'm leaving something good. And the fact is, well, this is the only way you're ever going to know. So you do it, you don't do it. Tina, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think this is a really important story. And I tell my students all the time, you don't get a job, you get the keys to the building. And it doesn't matter what role you take when you enter. If you demonstrate your ability, if you set an intention, and you start seeing and seizing the opportunities in that role, really amazing things are going to happen. If you only do the job that you have been assigned that is on your job description, you're letting yourself and everybody else know that's exactly the job that you are perfectly placed in. But if you continue to stretch and take on other responsibilities, help other people in areas outside of, you know, your specific role, people are going to start saying, wow, this person can do a lot more than we thought, and the doors are going to open for you.
Yeah, and a great thing to do if you're struggling is ask yourself, what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst case if I leave my my security of my current job and move into this position and it doesn't work out? And then come up with a solution for that. And you probably have multiple solutions for that. Really put yourself in that worst case scenario because once you have a couple of solutions, maybe they're not ideal, but they will work out then, you know, it's not so scary. It's not so scary to move forward. Bill, thank you so much for calling us today on Career Talk. And of course, for all of your support of the show and online, we really appreciate it. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we are talking all about creating your own luck. And believe it or not, there are so many ways to do that every day that we are just missing. And, and Tina, what I love about your book is you just talk about the abundance of luck and you have so many stories that are simple and relatable and anybody can do. We're not talking about you know, that you're ready at the top and you're ready at third base and how to get to home base. We're talking like like everybody can do this. So if you're just tuning in, you want to learn how to create your own luck in your job search, in your career, or as an entrepreneur, you can give us a call at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. John Graham. We're here with Tina Selig, who is a professor at Stanford University, graduated from their medical school with a PhD in neuroscience. And we're talking specifically about the book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, which I encourage you all to order right now online because you, you it would be really hard not to get many things out of this. So we're talking about about um, risk. And one of the things you point out is is about attitude and that that taking advantage of the things in front of us is really determined by attitude. Attitude is a big determinant of success. Can you talk more about that, Tina? Yeah, it's one of the things that we hear all the time, but it's something that we probably don't take enough time thinking about how we choose. And we really do choose to view the world. I am a big, huge believer in the power of framing and reframing the things that are going on. And and let me tell you a really personal story here, which I think will resonate with a lot of people. Um, Many years ago, and and in fact, I wrote about this in one of my books and had to get quite, I had to beg my husband to let me put this story in the book because it's very personal. Um, I guess maybe around 25 years ago, my husband and I were separated and we were separated for two years. We've now been married 33, so this was, you know, 20-something years ago. We were separated, though, for two years. And during that period of time, there were days I was feeling really optimistic. You know, I think we're going to be able to make this work, and I could make a list of 100 things that made me really happy about him and about our relationship. But there were other days where I was really pessimistic, and I thought, oh, my God, he's driving me crazy. There's no way I'm going to be able to make this work. And I'd make a list of 100 things that drove me crazy about him and about our relationship until I stepped back and realized they were the same things. <laughs> and it was a huge aha because it depended on my attitude. When I was feeling positive, I looked at the exact same behavior. You know, okay, oh, he's so funny. Isn't that a great joke? Or, oh, my God, that's such a stupid joke. That's just a silly example. But, you know, or an example like he started going to the gym a lot and working out. And on the good days, like, wow, he's in fabulous shape. How wonderful. And on days, bad days, I'd say, wow. You know, what a fuddy-duddy, doesn't he have anything better to do, right? I could make a story up that was positive or negative, even though the behavior itself was actually pretty neutral. And I think this is true, and I know this is true about every aspect of our lives. We choose how we engage with the situation. And um, I think about the fact as a teacher, I often have students where something happens and they don't show up or they're not available, they don't do their best work. I could quickly go to a place of thinking, wow, you know, this kid's a loser or this kid is, is screwing around. But I've learned recently that the best thing for me to do is ask them, hey, what's going on? What, what's happening with you? Usually there's something very meaningful in their life, something that's happened that has shifted their priorities in a way that makes complete sense, and we can then have a conversation about that. And so I think your attitude is incredibly important in every aspect of what you do, from your personal relationships, your job, 
you know, the way you engage with the world. I, and I want to tag on to that because it's such an important point, not just for your career in job search, but for life in general. And, you know, you talk about this in more depth in the book, but but this idea of, of you know, our, our lens that we see the world through and how we approach things based on our past experiences, based on our mood, as you're talking about. And, and we kind of make these fact in our mind. We could both be looking at the same thing. And because I'm in a bad mood, I'm like, bah, and you're in a good mood. You're like, that's beautiful or see different mm-hmm. things. Exactly. And I think if we don't stop to reflect, which we've we've kind of lost the art of reflection, then we're, we're missing this. We're just we're basing this off of of nothing. We're, we're looking at our phones and we see something negative and all of a sudden we're projecting that out into the world. And I think when you stop doing that, or at least you start recognizing that, you can start to assess opportunities much more clearly. And that is what is a big part of creating luck because you stop seeing problems as problems and you start seeing them as opportunities. And that's really what this book is about. Hey, 844-942-7866, you're listening to Career Talk on Sirius XM Channel 132. If you haven't gotten switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success, it is on Amazon. And right now we're going to go to our pre-break quiz. Quiz. There's a quiz. And I'm going to thank my colleague, John, for this one. Um, in what's, And this is, has a definite answer, Dion. In what U.S. state was the world's first pay telephone? In what U.S. state was the world's first pay telephone? If you think you know, give us a call, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk. And when we come back, we're going to talk about all about applying luck to your job search and career. Um, your host, Dr. Don Graham, you're listening to SiriusXM Channel 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Career Talk on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Dr. Don Graham. Welcome back to Career Talk, your career insider. We are here on Business Radio, and we are powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham, and if it is noon Thursday, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are here all hour taking your calls at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And just in case you missed the pre-break quiz, in what U.S. state was the first world's pay telephone? Pay telephone. You guys have heard of those. You've seen some of those. So, Dion, I'm going to let you... I think they're just called pay phones. Pay phones. I don't think they really exist anymore. <laughs> but do you know the answer? Um, I'm going to say Arizona. Why are you saying Arizona? No idea. You usually have a reason. I, I've got a 1 in 50 chance. So That's true. I, <laughs> I, I can do math. Um, yeah, I'm going to say Arizona. But it was... I'll give you some hints. Okay. It was 1889... I know, uh, well, did, I know, did we have Arizona in 1889? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I figured if you knew history, maybe that would be helpful. Um, no? Dana? Yeah, no. Dana? I'm going to say Massachusetts. Oh, you're you're getting close. Uh, not right. <laughs> not right. Not right. It was Hartford, Connecticut. And there's a little sign saying that it is now a CVS. Appropriately so. But I have a follow-up question for you, Dion. Of course this you was do. hard, yeah. Okay, what family sitcom did the father install a payphone in the house? This in the house? In the house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Is, is this, it's a very this, popular sitcom. A, okay. a popular sitcom. Granted, it was 1969. <laughs> what? But it's very popular. I'm 35. All right, all right. <laughs> well, I wasn't alive then either, but I have seen it. Uh, this uh, sitcom from 1969. Yeah, is that that's black and white TV, right? Actually, this episode was in color. 
<laughs> this episode was in color. I'm going to leave it out there. I'm going to leave it out there for our listeners. If you can I'm help Dion with one. his answer, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. In what family sitcom did the father install a payphone in the house? If you think you know, give us a call on Career Talk, 844-942-7866. Hey, so we are very excited to have Dr. Tina Selig on the show, who is a professor at Stanford University and author of 17 books. And the one that we're talking about today is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, which is fabulous, chock full of information. And let's talk a little bit, Tina, about how to apply this to your job search. So one of the things that that I loved about this book, and I actually did, was create a failure resume. Why would anyone want to create a failure resume? Yeah, it sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? My students are uh, a little shocked and uh, surprised when I ask them to do it, but it's really important to keep a failure resume. If you think about it, all learning comes from a failure. Nobody walks the, the first time they try. Nobody rides a bike the first time they try. You know, and it's trial and error before you figure it out. Why do we expect adults who are doing really complicated things to do everything right the first time? But you're never going to learn unless you actually reflect on what happened and what you're going to do differently the next time. So a failure resume is a great way to formalize that by essentially capturing your failures, personal, professional, and academic, and essentially writing them down, but also what you learned. So if I say, wow, today I interrupted my boss in a meeting and that did not go very well, and I would then write down, um, next time I'm going to make sure to hold my tongue and wait until, you know, it's an appropriate time for me to speak. It doesn't, you know, it's perfectly fine for me to speak, but I really need to wait my turn, whatever. And uh, you end up then looking at that, and it you, ends up allowing you to do two things. One is you stop beating yourself up. I know that I used to be one of these people who, when I made a mistake, I would just sit there, you know, essentially perseverating on it for, for a long time. It allows you to let go of it because you've written it down, you've written, you know, you've written down what you learned, but also you move forward much more quickly. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And, and you're going to be asked this in an interview at some point. You know, tell me about something where, that you failed at. Tell me about a lesson you've learned. And obviously, you, you don't, I mean, when I first started doing this exercise, I mean, of course, nothing comes to your head except the most extreme, egregious failures, which you never want to talk about in an interview. Even if they ask for your biggest failure, you want to pick something that is a lesson learned that doesn't re- apply directly to the core aspects of the job and shows that you've taken initiative to to get over it. So so for for nothing else, this is great preparation for the interview, but it's also great preparation for how far you've come. We often don't don't stop, as you mentioned, that word reflect again to do this. And I, I think it was actually kind of a boost to see that, wow, I have overcome a lot of things and have incorporated those because I am also, like you, Tina, very hard on myself. Um, so you Wait, also... Can I, just, can I just say something? I, I actually think... You could use something that's a big failure that's directly related to that job, because if you've demonstrated that that you learned from it and then show the next experience where you did something different, it's going to be really relevant, right? So I don't think you should hold back from sharing a mistake you made that is directly relevant and might be really daunting, as long as you can actually demonstrate that you learned from that experience. Yes, and that is the key, that you've demonstrated that you've learned and that you're not going to come in and do it again. And a lot of people um, don't, again, really think that deeply about it, Tina. And so I, I think you have to have all of those pieces uh, put together because you can turn a, a failure into a strength and say, you know, now I've actually won multiple awards doing this, even mm-hmm, though I wasn't exactly. very good at it. So if you have that kind of outcome, absolutely, you know, use it as a way to show how you've overcome something and also turned it into a strength. Hey, if you want some help answering that failure question, if you're struggling, you're going for an interview, give us a call 844-942-7866 and we can maybe help you mold your own failure resume because, hey, you know, these are the things that make us who we are. And employers want humans. Employers want people who reflect and can learn and um, have critical thinking skills. I mean, they, they sort technical skills are valued, but now they want people who can solve problems. And you can't do that if you're not reflecting and seeing where things worked, where things didn't work. One of the other key lessons that I like, Tina, um, in your book 
there's a line that there's no recipe, no magic potion to success and that each person has a story as unique as a fingerprint. And the reason I like this so much is because as a coach, I often get asked, hey, can you put me in touch with somebody who had this 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 path or who made this career switch and where they are now? And, and I try and explain there's probably nobody who has the exact same situation as you, but people often want this this stepping stone uh, set of rules to follow. And the fact is, they're just not there. Yeah, I tell my students that everybody's career and life is like a a string of beads, and no two strings of beads are the same. They're all really interesting and different. Every experience is a different bead, and you might look and go, oh, my God, this one is going to clash. But when you put it all together, it ends up creating something quite remarkable. And so you can never compare your path to someone else's. The starting point is different. The opportunities are different. The way they engage in the world is different. Um, you can certainly look to other people's stories uh, for inspiration, but but trying to just have a recipe doesn't make sense. And especially when I, when you have a recipe that's you know 50 years long, 50 steps long, uh, it's so much better to be open-minded so that when the opportunities that present themselves today, you go, you know what, that's pretty cool. You know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually explore that path. Whereas if you had a strict recipe, you might l- overlook an opportunity that was really fabulous that was right in front of you. You're listening to Career Talk on SiriusXM Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We're here with Tina Seelig, who's written 17 books. The one we're talking about today is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. She has an amazing TED Talk that you'll want to watch after the show. And hey, Tina, where can people reach you if they'd like more information after the show? Right. I have a, a bunch of places. I'm happy to have people follow me on Twitter. It's just T. Seelig, T-S-E-E-L-I-G. Um, I have a website, tinaseelig.com, with lots of resources. And also at Stanford, we have a vast array of resources at our website, which is ecorner.stanford.edu. There are thousands of videos and podcasts and articles all about living an entrepreneurial life. Fantastic. Hey, we want to take your calls if you're listening, 844-942-7866. So give us a call right now and find out how you can create more luck in your life. Something else that I took from the book that really relates to, especially career switchers, Tina, is that there's a lot of preparation that people go through and a lot of steps and a lot of uh, sacrifice. So I, I love the story about Bonnie who wanted to be a pilot, a TV reporter, and go to the Olympics. And she ended up doing all of them. And she ended up being in the... In the representing the U.S. in the luge because she discovered that that's an area where she had access to and where the U.S. didn't have a lot of people competing. And that may not have been her first choice, but she reached her goal. What, what can we take away from this as, as in our career? Yeah, her story is fabulous. In fact, I just saw Bonnie the other day, and I'm just reminded how she continues to be just a very bold person. She, at the age of 10, someone came to her school and talked about, you know, showed a list of of, uh, sort of life goals he had put together, and she thought, I'm going to do that too. And you have to realize she grew up in a very, um, a home with very modest means, uh, with, you know, not very many opportunities in front of her that were obvious. And she put things like going to the Olympics, going to a great college, being a, a newscaster, flying airplanes. She did all of this because she set her intention, and this is incredibly important. She set an intention for all of these goals, which allowed her, when opportunities presented themselves, for her to see that that was one step on the way to that goal. I mean, that's really critical here. Had she not had these goals and really articulated them to herself, she might not have seen those opportunities. So what happened is she, um, with the Olympics, she, there was a, I can't remember which Olympics it was, but there was an opportunity to go and become a torchbearer for the United States. And so she used her college application, which I guess had been effective for getting her into Stanford. So she used that and modified it, and it allowed her to, she ended up winning the opportunity to be a torchbearer for the United States. But that meant she had to take a quarter off of school. And so the Olympics were over. What was she going to do? And there were some really cheap luge lessons that were at, at the Winter Olympics. And she said, you know what, they were $8 a piece, I'll go take some. And she realized, you know, this might be a sport I could compete in. And because she had in her mind that she wanted to compete in the Olympics, she ended up pursuing that opportunity and ultimately did so. 
I love that. And I think in whatever form or fashion you set goals, you have to do it. I have a vision board that I have carried around with me for, for over a decade. <laughs> and, and I cut out a bunch of pictures from magazines. And they're all up on that vision board. And, and it's it's moved through various states and, and places in my home. And it's in my bedroom. I, I I mean, I don't consciously sit and look at it every day, but it's there subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And and I am I'm always working towards those goals. Some of them I've achieved. Some of them, you know, I'm still working on. But I think whatever form or fashion works for you, you have to put, you have to have a goal because there's no way you can reach it. And then there's something else I liked too, which was, um, you know, then write down all the things that are going to stop you because it's really easy for our minds to be, get in the way and say, how would I ever go to the Olympics? Where, you know, I'm, I'm too old. I'm too this. I don't have enough money. I don't, you know, I, I have to work for a living. We have all of the excuses, but write them all down and then start tackling them. Start tackling them because one of the things that I took away from your book, Tina, is that, that there is a solution to everything. I mean, you gave you, you've done a lot of really cool experiments in your classes, like giving people five dollars and saying, you know, go out for two hours and make as much money as you can. Now, most of us would think, what? What am I going to do with five dollars? And the things your students have done when they're they're kind of put in that challenge with a lack of resources has been amazing, amazing. And so I think we 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 stay at the surface too long and say, oh, I just can't. I'm this. I'm that. But if you write them down and dig into them, whoa, the things you can come up with. I think this is a really good point. I mean, that $5 challenge has really gained a tremendous amount of traction because it's a very simple challenge where I give the students an envelope with something in it. The first time it happened to be $5. The next time it was Post-it notes or paper clips or, you know, very tiny objects, things that might look very insignificant, and give them the challenge to create as much value as possible, value measured any way they want, starting with this very limited resource. And one of the things I want them to get out of it is not just the experience of doing this, but knowing they could look at anything. They can look at the pen on their desk. They can look at the clock on their shelf. They can look at the shoe on their foot. And every time saying, wow, what is all the value that is locked up in these items? How could I create even more value from these, you know, in the world? Yeah, it, it's, it's fantastic what we can do. And I, I would say the, the more limited your resources or the more doors that close on you, if you have a goal and you're determined to reach it, the more creative you get in reaching that goal. And so I, I, I think that has caused so many of the greatest things in the world to happen. I, I have a colleague who, um, you know, he, her son was moving to a specific place. He knew he wanted to work at a specific company. They didn't have an office there. He reached out to them, pitched a case as to why they should have a presence there. And, you know, long story short, he gets a job. And what I love about this story, too, that relates to what you talk about in your book, Tina, is don't, don't, wait for somebody to give you permission. I say this so many times. If you were a career switcher and nobody will hire you, go out and start. Do something. Get experience. Volunteer for for work at a company. Work in a different department in your organization and, and help them out. But I love this don't wait for permission. Yeah. the uh, One of the stories I tell in the book is about how when I started my first company, I, sh- I made business cards, right? That's what you do. I made business cards and they said, Tina Seelig, president. And I showed them to my dad, and he was appalled. He had been in the corporate world, and he had risen up through the ranks of his companies, and you always had to wait for someone else to anoint you, someone else to tell you, okay, great, you're ready to be a vice president or a senior vice president or a senior executive vice president. And I just made a business card that said, Tina Selig, president. And my insight after my discussion with my dad was, wow, entrepreneurs are those people who make their own business cards. They're the ones who don't wait for someone to put the ladder up in front of them. They essentially build the ladder below them. They say, here's where I want to be. I'm going to build this organization. And it's absolutely right. You, you can't just wait for other people to give you permission because in many cases you're not going to get it. It's funny, actually. Uh, last night my parents were over. My mom's going to be 90 and my dad is going to be 93 in just a couple weeks. And we were reflecting upon pivotal moments in our lives. And for each of us, it was a time where we did something that broke the quote-unquote rules, where we did something that was counter to what other people wanted us to do. And those became pivotal moments that unlocked tons of opportunities. Yeah, you talk about a lot of examples about that in the book, Tina, as well, about, you know, how how 
we get in these what you call prisons when we we have all these rules and we believe that there's all these categories that we fit in or we don't fit in. And and so we use this as a way to kind of set ourselves into this cage where we can't get out. But even in the job search, I think a lot of people still have this mindset of I'm going to send my resume online, respond to the job. They're going to look at it. They're going to see I'm qualified. They're going to bring me in for an interview. And it's going to be this logical, linear, step-by-step process that totally makes sense. And here's the deal. I wish, I wish the hiring process was like that, but there's so much... um, um, so much going on with, with how the ATS, the applicant tracking systems work and, and whether or not you get an interview and if they have an internal candidate and, you know, all of this stuff that you, you may not know about and may not be able to control. And if you stick to these rules, then you're, you're stuck in this process that just doesn't work. Absolutely. And the world is full of opportunities. Look at people who have done crazy, wild and different things. What separates them from you? I mean, also think about it. You know, look at... Um, someone who's the CEO of a company or uh, the, runs a large organization or runs the United States, right? You, you, these people have as many hours in the day as you have, an Olympic athlete. You know, somebody, these people have the exact same number of hours in the day that you have. So the only thing that differentiates you from them is how you spend your time, how you spend your mind share. And this is really important because it's not just your time and what you physically are doing. It's what are you thinking about? Am I thinking about solving a problem or am I, you know, going over and over about some little thing that happened earlier today that's a big waste of my mind share? Yeah, and we only have so much mental capacity, exactly. which is so true. And I, I want to, as we're winding down and the show's coming to an end, God, I could talk about this book um, for, for three shows, but there's something that I, I underlined in your book that I loved, which is never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. Can you oh, say yeah. more about that? <laughs> yeah, this is a really funny little story that turned into something much bigger. Um, I never use slides in my classes. I, I, the classes are very experience-based. But the first day of class, I always have some slides just to sort of go through what are the things we're going to sort of do in very broad strokes and also what my expectations of the students are and tell them, you know, if you can't do this, you know, if you're not interested in this, please don't sign up for this class. And the very last thing I have in, you know, on the last slide is never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. I say, you know, I'm going to deliver my best work. I'm going to be do the best job I can, and I expect the same from you. That this is the time I'm never. I have no problem giving everybody an A in the class, but the bar is really high, and I expect everyone to get over it. And that's the first and last time I say this. But the concept is so sticky that the students just keep repeating it over and over, and their performance just keeps getting better and better and better. And my insight was that people are waiting for that instruction. Mm -hmm. They're waiting for the instruction not to just do the minimum amount to check the boxes, right? Here's what you need to do to get an A. Here's what you need to do to get a promotion. They've been waiting for permission to say, guess what? Do your best. Life is not a dress rehearsal. If you're not going to do your best work now, when are you planning on doing it? And people rise to the occasion. It's truly remarkable. It, it is. And you, you um, kind of tie out that, that chapter with essentially you get out of life what you put in and the results are compounded daily. And, and that you kind bet. of has stuck with me because you realize if you could do a little bit better each day and you have a formula in there, but we don't do math on career talk. But it's really, really interesting how that compounds over time and increases your life. Tina, it's been so wonderful having you on the show today. One last time, where can people reach you? I can be found on Twitter at T Seelig, T-S-E-E-L-I-G. I've got a website, tinaseelig.com. And Stanford, we have an amazing uh, set of resources at ecorner.stanford.edu. Yep, and you really want to get this book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 by Tina Seelig. It's great. It'll be hard to walk away without a number of things you want to do right now. Hey, Dion and Dana, thank you so much for making this show awesome. And, of course, to all of our listeners and callers, um, we appreciate you tuning in each day. And just because... Nobody guessed it. It's Brady Bunch. It's Brady Bunch, Dion. Dana was right. Dana got it. it. All right, Dana got it. So, hey, you've been listening to SiriusXM on Channel 132. This is Career Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We'll see you next time. 